everyone. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is Mike Sauter and Mike Martin for the Regeneration Podcast. Um, we're here with a special guest today, a guest who's promised to be with us on a somewhat regular basis. I consider him kind of a polymath, interested in so many subjects uh, that will come up in the course of the interview today. Uh, I myself have always, people who know me know I love a great thinker, Ivan Illich, who waded into so many different fields and had so many insights in so many different fields. And I see our guest today that I'll name right now, uh, Dr. Guido Preparata, as an intellectual in that fold, uh, economics, cultural history, history, uh, all those things. Uh, Guido, can you uh, can you tell, to tell our guests a little bit about yourself in the way that you would introduce yourself? Uh, hello, everyone, first of all. Um, pleasure to be with you. Introduce myself. I've uh, yes, I uh, I studied uh, studied economics at uh, at gunpoint. My my fam, my fam, my, my <laughs> parents forced me into it. I, I wanted to be a flamenco guitar player, really. I mean, where I and uh, not that I had that much talent, but <laughs> better than economics, it would have been. So anyway, so yeah, uh, so I've been I've been forced to do this this uh, this discipline, which in itself is really interesting. Uh, very important, and the way it's treated is uh, as an abomination. It's in, aside from being tremendously tedious. So yeah, I, I took this approach of uh, of you know doing turning uh, applying flamenco to economics to try to make it more interesting. I don't know if I've succeeded, but I guess it's been my intent. <laughs> That's great. That's great. It's got background in criminology. Some of that will come up. Backgrounds, uh, uh, various academic backgrounds, and hopefully we'll. I'll ask you at some point in the conversation. Um, and because you're going to be with us many times, uh, we'll get more of your life history and different things you've done. Um, Co-host here, also a polymath, uh, Michael Martin. Michael, you uh, uh, you wrote a chapter on economics, and uh, tell how did we first meet? I think it was because of the name Guido Preferata in some ways. Oh, I'm well. I, I know. Well, here it's kind of a funny thing. Um, so it must. What year did this book come out? So my book, Transfiguration, I think it came out in 2018. Yes, it came out in 2018. So it must have been 2016 when I was starting to do some research for the chapter on economics, uh, The World is Household. Um, <laughs> it was kind of funny. I was, so I was teaching a, a course at just like was an intro to composition course for college freshmen. And they were doing a, a library orientation, so, which is always great because when they're doing that, I can just do my own thing and, since I'm in the library. So I was right. researching. So I was using the databases and, I'm, and I, I, I was really interested in the idea of perishable currency, which I had encountered years ago in Rudolf Steiner's work. And I, I was wondering, well, I wonder if anybody's doing anything with that now. And so I did a did a search and thought the only name that came up was Guido Preparata. And so I, I read these two articles uh, that I think you have them on your website too. Um, that and I was totally blown away, not only because of the economics, but when Guido compared a sound economics to a biodynamic farm <laughs> you know, I was sold since I'm a biodynamic farmer you know so and I and I was just inspired and the funny so no, it had to be 2016 yeah because that was the year that we had that conference at my farm right and I had known you a little bit 
through through the internet and you came and I'll, the first night when we're having like okay we're drinking a lot of wine we're drinking wine all the participants and you started talking about guido preparata i'm like wait a minute <laughs> i'm supposed to be the only one who knows who that is um so you, so it was i i felt that i was in the right place with the right people here That's and uh and i mean guido's work really inspired me to to think that such a thing would be possible and i've even i've and, and, and interesting, I tell people a lot in that book, I, I, and in fact, in that chapter, I talk about the powers that be would do anything to stop this from happening, to, hop, to stop a holistic economy, which they're actually doing right now. <laughs> and uh, so it's, and, and I didn't expect it to happen so quickly. So Same from more. 20... Yeah. Uh, well, well, from 2018, when the book came out, you know, I thought, you know, that all this stuff I'm talking about, about, you know, the, the economic powers making a move to subvert the possibility of a, of a genuine household holistic economics, that I didn't realize that that moment was that close to, to happening. And, and I think what we've seen in the last two years, I mean, and I've been telling people, I said, this is supposed to be distributism's moment. Where are all these people? Where are all the distributors? Where are all the people with, with sound ec economics? And they're out there, but um, it's, they're being, there's such a rush by, say, the World Economic Forum and those kinds of bodies to crush any kind of independent social initiative. And interestingly enough, 20 years ago, I wrote an article on Blade Runner but which was really a meditation on transhumanism and nobody thought that was going to happen either. It did, and both it, of it those becomes, things are happening right it's now. It's come so far so fast, you know, and it's, and it, and it used to scare people. Yeah. <laughs> now people think it's a good idea. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's jump into it then again, mentioning that Guido will join us uh, on a pretty regular basis. You know, today we're going to focus on economics. Mike Martin, Michael Martin mentioned distributism, you know, which is a, Oh, a much touted movement, mostly within the Catholic fold, named G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc and others. You know, it was, it was a, a different approach to economics. Um, and Mike, your broadside generally against most people who call themselves is distributed. I mean, what what's your broadside again? It's cosplay. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they're basically, you know, uh, Tolkien fanboys <laughs> who don't do anything even remotely distributisty, you know. Right. In it fact, I, there, talk. there are some uh, in, like Facebook groups on distributism, and I once in a while I pop in and ask them, "Does anybody do anything, you know, distributism wise?" And it right. seems uh, I, apparently in some of those circles, uh, it's re distributism is really progressives who go to church. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so it doesn't seem very distributive to me. So Guido, what do you, uh, um, let's talk, you know, not exclusively within the Catholic fold, but give us a sense if you can, and kind of broad brushstrokes or however you want to, where, are the, where are the, the people who care, like the people who aren't just rapacious capitalists or socialists, where they've been, you know, maybe the encyclicals of the Catholic church in the last 200 years, what's good, what's bad, what's worth saving distributism 
just start giving us some of your thoughts on this. It's good. It's a, it's a, it's a good question. So, I mean, I, I'm a Catholic who, who has not been in the Catholic world for, for a very long time, really, uh-huh. uh, intellectually speaking, uh, mostly. And and uh, and I only I only became aware of that world um, later on by publishing some things with them uh, on on Bataille on this journal that they have out of University of Texas. There's a stronghold of Catholics there. I don't know which one. I forget. Yeah. The University of Texas itself. Is. And, and then when I joined the Gregorian, of course. Um, the Pontifical Gregorian University, right? Yes, the, Pontif- yeah. yes the, the, the Jesuit flagship university in, in Rome. Um, it's, you know, Vatican City. I mean, it's not in the Vatican, but it belongs to the church and so on. And so then, uh, and I became, and an, an once I was in, in, in that world, then I got to talk to uh, others and Catholic um, professors and intellectuals and discovered that there is, as you say, indeed, a world of, of, of Catholic um of Catholic uh, scholarly production. And it, it's, it's quite surprising because it seems like those who are immersed in that world, live in that world, breathe in that world as if it were, but if you're not in that world, it's as if that world didn't exist at all. Hmm. And uh, which is to say that that world does not exist because, you know, because it doesn't. So it's a bubble that these Catholics have created for themselves in which they live. Our world is already a world of illusion, right? And we can both, maybe we'll need a whole new session to talk about, you know, politics as spectacle, what is reality and so on and so forth. But it's very important as a political issue. So we already live in in the matrix. So everything is pretty much fake. Everything that we live, they create this environment for us. And within this fake environment, the Catholics has created a sub-loop of fakery within itself, where they elude themselves that there is a Catholic thought. And frankly, to me, there isn't. It's all like, uh, it's very much, uh, it's like an F- NFT, speaking of cryptocurrencies. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's it, there is no such thing. They have these, and, and, all, and I was talking to these priests, you know, have you, have you read this? And Pesh, Hans Pesh, or I don't know. And and I have his books, I still haven't read them, I must say. But um, <laughs> and, and the ins- and, and and so and and, and no, these these are these these were guys that I liked and who um, who could cite the encyclicals, you know, Rerus Novarum, Leo the Thirteenth, and this and then so on and so forth. And and I read them and I forgot them the day after. And I still not capable of citing with like with competence the the encyclicals. I think I I, I think that is um, that is a giant. Uh, theology and Catholic theology is uh, is um, like neoclassical economics. It's just uh, how can I how can I convey the the, the, the delirious uh, sentiment the, the the sentiment of delirium that surrounds me. Discursive and verbalistic production full of nothing. Mm-hmm. There is nothing there. Nothing. <laughs> Yeah. And I guess it's part of the system of filling and, and, and filling us and swelling us with all this discursive nothing. And I read this in one in Alistair Crowley, as a matter of fact, that one of the key things of getting people to be completely subjugated and useless and manipulable is to fill their brain with so much crap or like or not, not even know if it were filled with crap, it would be good because then it would just create a, a, a you know counter movement of ejecting it. And no, it's to fill it with ballast 
so that you can't think anymore. And, um, and that's, and we see that. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, this is not an attack on Catholic thought, but that's ballast and, uh, and, and not the worst there is, but it's so, yeah. Yeah. yeah so you know, jargon, maybe like third way, the word denotes something, but nobody really unpacks it or distributes economics. It denotes it's one of the, It's one of those things, Mike, you know, when you look at the mirror every day and you ask yourself and you look at, <laughs> take a good look, it says, aside from the way you look on that Monday morning, but, and, and then past the shock, you ask yourself, how much do I really know? And, and I do that because about anything. And, uh, and it, it's, it's an exercise that I hate to do because it, it chills my blood. And, but I do it every day because, you know, just realize that you really don't know anything. And he says, well, that can't be true. I've just spent the last, you know, 18 hours reading this, reading that, but what have you really read? Most of it is junk anyway. Mm-hmm. And to get us to two gems of very basic truth, uh, it would be great. And uh, so I guess, I guess it's, it's a reflection also on the intellectualism and, and the kind of, and the kind of the discursive and, and soft power. You know, what are the, we're ants in an, in, an, in an ant heap. What are they feeding us to move us collectively? You know, it's not just about the, 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 you know the cudgel and and to be uh, and to be regimented like cattle. That part is essential, and we've seen it with COVID, and, and always has been. We didn't need COVID to know it, but but as we know, it's the, the, the best way to manipulate people is not by bludgeoning them. It's it's through thought, and when you think about thought and think about how many things you know, um, it's it's dismaying, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm teaching a course in the fall that it's supposed to be a course on on writing theory but i don't care about writing theory so i'm I'm doing it when i want to do it and one of the things i'm making students read is edward bernay's book propaganda Mm. because it's because it's all around us right now right and uh and and like you were saying you know these kind of enclosed circles of blah 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 you know, in academics, academia in particular. And I, I just reread um, about, about a month ago, uh, Herman Hesse's book, The Glass Bead Game. Yeah, I didn't read it. It's, 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 a, it's what happens. It's just this closed circle of intellectual gamesmanship, mm-hmm. which is what academia was, is to me. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Nobody knows anything. No, but the no, but, but the Catholics is the same. Oh, I know. It's a, I know. It's the same thing. Exactly the same thing. It, it's it's their version of the <clears throat> game, mm-hmm. the glass bead game. Yeah. yeah. What would you? Uh, that that's a pretty strong critique, you know, and I agree with it, of course. But the um, what? No, but I mean, where where, would, not, where do we begin? And like, what do you start to put forth? Sorry, Mike. Stuff? You get yeah. you get like fifteen of these people in a room, and the first thing they say they say this. As a neo-Thomist, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. God, God. I mean, but anyway, what's the point? I mean, of, 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 but what do we do? What do we do? I don't know. I mean, what, what we discovered this far is that it, we not, it's not going to go through confessional affiliation. It's about, you know, getting together with, uh, and, and there are a lot of people, a lot, and we know that in, in the Catholic realm that want to do something and as they are in every other realm. And, uh, and let's just get them all in the same project to do what we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. So let's start breaking it down a little bit. Um, you know, 
it seems like uh, let, let's go with what Michael you know, Martin put forth is the reason that he got so interested. Let's um, tell us about perishable currency, break it down. What problem does it solve? Maybe later we'll talk about um, you know, usury or maybe that's right implicated or at the center of what you're gonna say, but yeah. perishable currency. Yeah, I, I remember I discovered that when I was, uh, I, I, was already, I was in grad school, I'm not past college. And, uh, you know, and so I decided and um, I read this, uh, this book about the economic thought of Ezra Pound. Right? And Ezra Pound, as we know, is one of those um, poets who didn't survive well, because, you know, all of his completely threw himself with abandon and worshiping the fascist and Mussolini and whatnot, and so anti-Semitism all the way through. So he's been, I mean, even if Allen Ginsberg went back to him and asked for his blessings after, you know, but I don't think that redeemed him publicly, be that as it may. Um, and, and through Ezra Pound, I discovered Gazelle, you know, and uh, because Silvio he was- Silvio Gazelle, can you give Silvio us- Silvio Gazelle, yeah, yeah, this ex, ex business, uh, is a businessman of dental implements that made money in Argentina as many Germans did at the turn of the cent last century, last two centuries, I mean, 1900s. And, uh, and yeah, this guy was in the professional economist. He was just a businessman who had this intuition, which we found also in Stein, and then I also discovered in a book by Bertrand, Bertrand Russell. Well, hmm. anyway, yeah, um, the idea that everything and the problem of usury, the problem of panics and uh, is rooted in money and in the fact that money has been equated with the idea of uh, the root of all evil is not money, it's the fact that you, you equated money with a commodity. And of all the commodities, they chose this one gold for whatever reason, which is imperishable. And, um, and, and so, that reading this 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 gem, I remember it's one of the for me it was it was ninety four it, it transformative. I mean, I just uh, for what I, for as a student of, of of political economy, just my life changed. All of a sudden, I I thought I could start beginning to understand. And I and mind you, I already I already was a graduate who had no clue. So wonder I understood as I keep always saying I understood of economics less. Than I did when I first started as a, I, I you know, before, less when I started my degree than after four years. And true of many subjects, I can tell you. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, completely. So this idea for me was, uh, I know, it just uh, life changing, at least intellectually. And 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 at that moment, you're on. You discover. You start to see. You you're breaking the veil. And slowly you rip a piece of the curtain, uh, you know, and you see that you start to see, you know, the, the shoes of the Wizard of Oz. Slowly you start to see the, you know, the heel and start to see the hem shortly as you kept tearing. And the more as you do that, however, as we all know, the system is going to say, you know, there's going to look at you and it says, well, what are you doing here? You know, you are a creature of privilege. You've done all your things. You... You lead a life, you, you don't do anything really, you don't work, you know, you just read books and do this, we were saying the blah, 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 and you travel the world talking about blah, blah, blah. And so just be grateful and go on and do, be a scholar and, and be a scholar and don't annoy anybody and that's that. And, and so then people have a choice, you know, you can conform and play the game and live a life of ease and be a scholar or an academic, which is, you know, according to Huxley, you're an alpha. Mm -hmm. 
there are several levels of alpha, but you know, even you're, you're as an academic, you're an alpha, and the life of an alpha is a nice, it's a nice life. <laughs> but if you don't want, if but but it's you know, and we're going back, we're going to go back to the things that for me are the mainstays. You know, if we live in an anthill, but in, in an anthill that, you know, in an anthill is the queen. And the queen is not a real queen. A queen is a gen, it's a generative apparatus that has been worshipped. Here, we don't have a queen and the queens don't do that. What we have, the way I see it, we have, and I've been studying a lot of entomology and the study of parasites is in collectives in social insects is extraordinary. Yeah. And um, as I was saying, I read these books and I have to block the pictures because I find insects gross, but um, I, I, it's, it's very enlightening. So the, 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 uh, the, the main thing is that, you know, um, societies are, Termitaries occupied by a parasitical directive body. That's what it is. When you translate this into thought, it's called conspiracy theory. In other words, you don't, you don't see the conspiracy theorists, poor or good that they may be. They're all bad according to the system, but it's, we know it's not true. There are some very bad ones, and there are some of those who can think, more or less, who can try. Conspiracy theorists just think that the people that rule are usurpers, that they shouldn't be there and that they're conveying all the resources and, and mangling the end heap as a result. And that's the main problem. So, so this is what you do. When you're starting to figure out how the elite sucks the resources out of the rest of the worker bees, which, and the main way of doing this is not through the sting, it is through the money. Mm. And this is why you shouldn't touch money. And this is why in economics, money is not discussed at all. Or uh, in neoclassical economics, it doesn't exist. Money, they say, is a veil. I mean, it's all about relationship of exchange and money just happens to be thrown in as something that allows the exchange, which is kind of clever in a sense, because as, as, a, as a concealment. And then there's the Marxists and all the other schools, those that, you know, who understand nothing of money, but they're, they're, they're precisely to confuse you. So, or you don't like neoclassical, well, then go to the radicals. And who are they? Marx and the Austrian school. Austrians really, well, whatever, the anarchy, the libertarians. Yeah, yeah, read them. Yeah. Yeah, do that and you'll understand even less. No, does it tell you that gold is good money? And so you're, people are so confused. But when you understand how it works and how the parasites suck resources to keep themselves in place, then at that point, you know, you're in real trouble. Not only are you just challenging, you know, your position as part of the parasites, because as an alpha, you, are, you have demanded access to become one of the parasites and the mm -hmm. parasites who are very selective have selected you and you should be just kissing their feet. So not only are you not kissing their feet, you're even telling them you're even un, you know, uncovering the way in which they suck resources out of the rest of us, us, of them. So, so that's what the story is. Yeah. Perishable money. Yeah. Yeah. This is how it should be. It was a simple realization that everything dies and how come the only thing that doesn't die is this thing, right? Money. Mm -hmm which is likened to gold, fundamental. You, you find it also in Galileo. There's this famous quote that I put in one of my papers where you can sense that it was there. And it's the main fundamental revolutionary idea. Now, there are people who are on our side who say that it's not that important. You need to create, you need to put the money out there in the first place. Then if you want to add a clause of perishability, maybe so, but that's not the main thing. For me, I think both are important, but you cannot, the, 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 the perishability clause is essential. 
So once you understand this, it's it can it open avenues for us to get organized. But as you were saying before, and and and, and Michael was saying it too, you got to be very careful because because they, they're going to stop you. And why are they going to stop you? Because if you start to take the money away from them, which is the means they used to suck sustenance from the population to them, you know, because in the end, when you say, oh, well, what does it mean that some jerk at some big corporation earns, I don't know, 1600 times the wage of the lower paid, the lowest paid? Uh, it means just that, that there is a system that allows him or her to convey that much to this, to this group, and they are the usurpers, and there's no convincing us that these right. guys are superior. They're not superior. As a matter of fact, the superior ones are in the middle stratum who do the propagandistic work for them so that they can suck this much. You know, this famous part of the petty bourgeoisie by Ansonsberger, right? You know, it's all petty bourgeois. So it's a battle of us, petty bourgeois. So there's us here. We're talking to our correspondents on the other side of the fence who are many more, many more, and have a lot more power, a lot more prestige, and telling them, you bastards, you are working for the usurpers, and you are writing thought and discursive material to justify their tenure. But they're worthless. They're worthless people. And not only are they worthless people, there's nothing that justifies this transfer of resources vis-a-vis the misery of the others, right? Right. And so this is what we're trying to do. And before I before I stop on this one, I wanted to quote also one of the main classic of anarchistic literature is Lavrov's famous, the historical letters Lavrov's, which was a great inspiration to all the Russian movement and so on. And I think I forget which letter it is, the eighth or so. He says, you Who's, know, so this is a Russian economist. Yeah, this okay. uh, Russian. It's a name I'm not familiar with. Yeah, eclectic Lavrov. Yeah, okay, Peter, Peter Lavrov. Everybody's he, thinking uh, of Sergey Lavrov, the uh, the current. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, okay, and and. Peter Piotr, Peter Lavrov says, you know, and yeah, but on the other hand, you know, we understand the, 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 the parasitical nature. This, these, these are things of words that have to become embedded in our, in our lingo. Parasites, usurping, because that's what it is. And these are entomological terms, not, not pejorative in any, exclusively. And Lavrov says, well, yeah, but I mean, uh, there's got to be, there's got to be some transfer, Right. You cannot put Beethoven to work, right? Beethoven has to write symphonies. And of course, all the academics says, no, you can't do that. Meaning, you're not going to put me either because right, right. You know, we're all little Beethovens, aren't we not? <laughs> I'm thinking, not sure about that. But I'm thinking about myself. Why shouldn't I work the fields? I don't want to work the fields. And I'm not Beethoven. Is there anything that justifies me not working the fields? And the answer is absolutely not. But this is a lie we tell each other. Say, so, no, man. And when, at the moment, you look at the mirror. Say, man, yeah, of course, you. You should be. You shouldn't be working the fields. You should be just reclining on this French lounge chair and read whoever some yeah, some fancy name nobody's heard. Of. Yeah, no. And, and Lavrov says, Lavrov says, well, think of Beethoven and so on and so forth. And the question he poses, it's his classic. He, he says, yes, of course. Uh, mention all the masterpieces that you want. Uh, Faust and the symphonies of Beethoven and, 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 and the sacred music of Mozart and whatever you want. And or, if, you know, you want to throw in there, Malsevis and Coltrane, fine with me. These people, you know, so somebody had to transfer a lot of resources for them to make these masterpieces. So don't question the system. There's got to be some suffering. This is what they say. This is kind of the... 
conservative answer. There's got to be some suffering to create these masterpieces. And there's some injustice that goes along with it. You know, and Lavrov says, yes, but is was it worth it? All this, these holocausts and the pain and, the, and these millions dying, living these lives of crap that have left no mark on this world, have lived miserable, killed by stress, killed by this, killed by illness, just to feed all these parasites and on the side a Beethoven and a Mozart. Was it worth it? And the question is, Lavrov is ambivalent, says possibly, but it was an extraordinary price to pay for, mm. to listen to those two symphonies. And it makes you wonder if we were able to play a record with all the screams and pain of those who have died in agony to make those things possible. You might even say at the end that for as much as, you know, some of Mozart's sacred music just makes you cry every time, it was probably, probably not worth it, considering the pain. So in light of these problems, in light of these problems, maybe how do we get to, how do we get Mozart to compose without inflicting so much pain on the rest of the anthill? I guess this is the question for us. Great. Right. And whatever answer we give to it, it has nothing to do with what these guys these days are doing in power. They are, you know, light years away from this. And they're doing what I call, you know, the usual thing I call modern, hypermodern. They haven't, they say they have, rethought everything they said they're sorry for killing the natives the indians whatever and this and that one they're not sorry at all if they were to start again they would kill them all even faster than they would yesterday because the mentality hasn't changed one so all these lies and nonsense they're saying but um but yeah so they it's i saw a stat i saw a stat and i forget the exact numbers but the latest package that we might ship to ukraine in comparison with the annual budget for all the Native American you know, reservations yeah. and so on. It's astounding, astounding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, if we wanted to, we could pave Congo, the streets of Congo with gold, you know, but I mean, so you wonder what have they done with 40 years of foul and United Nations feed the world, feed the world, my left hind leg. They don't care in the least. So, so we have, so what's ahead of us is super hard not, not, not only because the system is just hell-bent on continuing as it has, and, and also because we are so very few, so disorganized, right? And uh, we're not united. We, we, we don't know all. We don't know each other at all. We know if it's in, we should, we're not aware. Uh, and, uh, and plus, we have our own limitations, you know. And, and I'm not talking about human limitation. I'm talking about uh, understanding our theories, you know, and the fact that we cannot even guess uh, most of the moves of these players there I always feel they're like 10 steps or 10 steps ahead of me or whatever I'm trying to devise how they think and what they do so anyway Michael you know uh, think of your class again what would be another question for you know, Guido at this point well yeah that's I mean college students right now it seems from what i've been talking to them especially about this and this i get this from the, the more mature students you know and and they really it's interesting you know because of covid there's a mixture of of despair and hope in them you know they don't like what's happened to them but also on the other hand they they don't see 
um, much hope for the future. So a lot of them, even a couple of my kids have, have become really interested in investing because they don't think there's any kind of financial stability ahead for them. Not that investing is. And when I mention perishable currency or, you know, kind of these kind of uh, Christian anarchist principles toward, toward finance and economy, they're always a little first taken aback because what'll happen if it, if it perishes, what's going to happen to the value of my money. Right. So they get a little freaked out and, but on the other hand, they're intrigued because they want something, you know, they want whole, something whole. In fact, last time Mike and I talked, uh, he mentioned that his son uh, has friends who are all getting interested in astrology, you know, and I think it's because they want to live in a universe that means something that has, that has substance and it speaks to them in some way. And, and I see that with one of my students actually was raised with no religion. And she contacted me yesterday and she, she wants to study divinity in, 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 in graduate school because she finds this search for meaning important to her. So, so my, my, uh, and the reason I wrote that book, but is how do we create, even if we just create um, like small scale um, healthy economies? You know, um, for instance, um, where I live, there's a lot of Amish people, you know, there's a couple of Amish communities and I do a lot of business with, with Amish communities. I use Amish butchers and poultry processing and carpenters when I have to, and they seem to have a pretty healthy economy. And even though we're still using the man's money, right. (laughs) We're still, we're still using the man's money, but, and that's, that's going to be a problem for me. <laughs> I don't see how they're going to get untangled from that yet, but they still seem to have, there, there seems to be a kind of flourishing in those Amish communities, not only with their relationship to business and farming and money, but also their relationship to family. And they got, you know, they have, they have flourishing bank accounts and they have flourishing families. They have, you know, nine, eight, nine, ten kids. So, so how does all this, I mean, how, how, how do we. So, but how, what do they, what do they live off the, the Amish? Uh, different, some of them car, carpenters, uh, like this one guy, the, the, the butcher I use, he's, he employs, I don't know, five or six people. They're full-time every, you know. But you say they, they depend on demand. What do you mean by that? They're still using American currency, right? Well, okay. Right. Yeah. But, but they, they manage to survive. They're a self-contained unit. They are. They're as, they're as, close, <laughs> they're as close as I've seen to what you described. Yeah, I, I have a lot of um, issues around me here in upstate New York. And yeah. um, a lot of the dairy farms will... You know, quite often you send a car to pick them up, but they come and build the best structures for new parlors and uh, uh, a lot of people um, roofing, um, things like that. But in addition to their own farming here near where I live, every high school kid goes, there's a, an Amish farm that sells kind of their own donuts on Saturday mornings and uh, Livonia High School. All the, all the kids drive out there and get them real cheap, super sweet. 
and uh, and they buy other assorted crafts and goods when they're out there. Maybe there's a lot to learn from them, I suppose. I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> kind of decentralized. Another aspect of them is, you know, they're kind of decentralized, but they still have some yeah. homogeneity, you know, in real community, which is a, yeah. a lesson we need to learn, you know, a different way of doing the world other than the nation state. Yeah. So say yeah, more. Well, I, you know, go ahead, Michael. Yeah. Well, I, I had I had a student uh, a couple of years ago. That was weird. I had a student a couple of years ago. She wanted to do uh, a paper or a project on alternate ways to live. You know, because she was it was at the beginning of COVID. I mean, she was like, she was really trying to pull out of it, and so she she decided she wanted to do. Um, something on Christian, Christian anarchism. And I said, well, what got you interested in that? <laughs> I said, I'm kind of Christian anarchist. And uh, so she got really interested in, she in, investigated, you know, uh, all these alternative economies within the economy, you know, and alternative lifestyles as it wasn't only uh, the Amish she looked at, there were some other things I can't remember what else she looked at. But make intentional communities, like Bruderhof um, and Bruderhof kind of stuff, yeah. And 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 these are just usually uh, kids from non-religious backgrounds, you know, or kind of the nuns, right? And yet they're 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 drawn to this the the communal aspect of it for sure, and like like Mike's son's friends there's a cosmological dimension to it as well. So there's, and we can call it a spiritual dimension. So it's not only communal, but there's a spiritual thing they're looking for as well. And, and, and I remember, I think I read in Steiner where Steiner describes uh, currency as, as like water, like money is like water and it's got to flow through the system. And if it stops flowing, It'll stay in one place and just like water, when it stays in one place, it gets rotten and, and disease ridden. So it's got to keep moving to keep healthy. And as it, as it runs through the system, it replenishes everything, just like with perishable currency, right? It, if it's got to move, it's got to move. So, and it gets, it gets to move and it, and it goes other places and it runs through the system where more people than just Bill Gates can benefit from it. At least that's how I understand it. Guido, talk, you know, use what Mike said about the, um, the importance of circulation in money is to say more about like what perishable currency could do for an economy. Yes, hold on, just, just some noise here. Just let me try if I can block it sure. just a second. No problem. Michael, so you, uh, um, you, I can, this is a good time for me to mention too. You were talking about blood and circulating. You're the editor of a journal. Uh, Jesus, the imagination, and uh, the next it's been published. People can find it on Amazon. I have an article coming out, I think, in the next one that's on usury, and it mentions perishable currency. But in that, I quote um, a, 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 a person, a kind of a hero of mine, uh, Leon Bloy, great French kind of apocalyptic writer who Pope Francis quoted in his first homily after he was named Pope. Uh, but Leon Bloy always equated blood with uh, blood with money. He said when you read the Bible, every every place you see the word blood, you can substitute the word money. And every time you see the word money, you can substitute the word blood. And the upshot, one of the upshots was that, again, it has to circulate, you know, like blood. And when when it doesn't circulate, 
you know, the problem of hoarding. Um, what does this make you think, Guido? Yeah, yeah. As I said, for me, it was uh, it was just it's it's the most revolutionary idea that I that I, I encountered, socially speaking. I wish I thought of it. But and uh, it was it's so amazing, so amazing, and 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 it, it just strikes me, it strikes me uh, why the it hasn't blown away more people because that's where the the, the I guess you know ninety percent of 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 the the solution lies, if if not all of it, and reorganizing around that, and of course the circulation and the idea of setting up a system where. All the innovations that we have now, electronic innovations, it's exactly what, where we should be going with electronics-wise. In other words, to give the money the least amount of physical properties as, as, as necessary, which is what Gazelle said. It's a symbol because money is a symbol. Right. This is why the, the crypto guys, uh, you know, are, are that part, they completely understand and they're very advanced, advancing on that thing. And, but that's how it should be. And, and all those advances... That money is magnetic impulses in a circuit. That's that's how it should be. So all those all those ideas are work in our favor. And then it's the gold part. It's the gold part that we have to fight because yeah. that's that's what's used instead. That's what's used to, you know, using the the typical what's called the capitalists. But it's not capitalism. It's call it whatever you want. Call the standard chief exploitative method. And I, I, I guess, I don't know where I was reading this, maybe it was this uh, from David Graeber that said that uh, Marxism called capitalism is just a more a, a mechanized, mechanized version of this long approach and practice mm-hmm. of exploiting others uh, through the wage system, starting with money. The exploitation is, is not what you know that the marxian thing is a one-on-one relationship with labor so i steal your no the institutionally the institutional key part in the story is that in it's when and it's when the ones who control the hoard of money come in to decide how money is going to be distributed in the metabolism that's when it starts yeah and so and how do they do this and that, you know by appropriating and, and making everything scarce because then you're able to extract monopolistic rents and this yeah. is what all business is about it's not about competing it's to compete to destroy so you can start to monopolize and charge a lot for something that you know this is it's always the same thing and this is how economics should be taught it's the first thing is well, the first thing you want to do is to enclose and uh, appropriate make it proprietary and charge you for it. Why? Because aboriginally, the first one who started this, BA, uh, generally was an agriculturalist, had to pay to put his wares on the market versus gold. The one died, what he had died, the gold didn't, hence the usury. That's what, and astonishing, and you were asking me about, you're asking me about the church, I, I went to the to the Catholics thinking that I was going to this was going to be a great success. You know, the church has been talking about usury and trying to regulate usury for, for centuries. You went without, to the church at pretty high levels, right? Yeah. And yeah people, who, people who had the intelligence to understand. They absolutely. And who had the channels to the Pope, for that matter. But, um, you know, they said this and they understood and they they understood immediately, but they said uh, the first thing, as I told you, the first thing you do is get yourself a good lawyer to make and to make it happen. Because yeah, because they immediately saw because they they are they understand everything and they understand very much the worldly realm. And, and this is an encroachment upon the way things are organized. 
you start to take away from them their blood. They're going to, you know, they're going to come after you at some point. Do you think, you know, directing maybe some listeners at this point, you know, famously, uh, if people want to hear how this has been tried, because I'm convinced some people would be thinking that, you know, that it has been tried. Do you it think has been tried. The, the lessons, do you want to talk about that? There's YouTube videos about the Wurgle experiment. Yeah, yeah. There, there's lots out there if, you, if one wants to look for it. Yeah, it's very little. Give, give mean, people some pointers, you know, where to look to learn a little bit more about it. Yeah, yeah. There, in, in the mythology of people who are enthused by this thing, there, yeah, there are two, Schwanenkirchen, uh, and forget, and Virgil is the other one. One in Germany, one in Austria. Can you spell Wurgel? W O with the two dots. Yeah. Uh, R G L. Okay. So and I think if you just put a YouTube search in there, you're going to find. Yeah, there's, it's, there's it's, actually a screenplay about it, but also just oh, uh, yeah, black think, and white videos about you know the experiment, and and it was a threat. It was a threat. It had to be shut down. Media mente because it works so actually. Well. No, it it it, uh, it, no? it flew under the radar for a while, okay. Uh, and the way it worked is also it's it's a great story because it also it, it meshes with the Steiner story. The, the yeah. reason so the, this this borough, which depended on a coal mine, uh, was devastated by the crisis. I mean, the whole the whole the whole city went was unemployed. So, the, the mayor, or what somebody, happened to the mine? Or was it just uh, it closed down? Right? Yeah, Everything okay. closed down, and yeah. so because you know there were no, because no money was coming from the central, and so yeah. from the banking consortium, whatever. And so somebody had read Gazelle and told the mayor or the mayor himself, I don't remember, said, "Well, then you know, screw this. I mean, and we're going to issue our own currency, and we're going to actually not only are we going to issue our own currency, we're going to use the method." Uh, preconized by Gazelle himself, you know, to affix little stamps that denote the fact that the current, the bill that you were exchanging was losing money every week or every month. Every you put like twelve little stamps. So this is, was a very rudimentary way of doing it. Nowadays, electronically, you wouldn't do it that way. But anyway, and so and yeah, the story that we read is like you know, it's one of it's 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 the myth of one of the myths, one of the founding myths of uh, of the uh, currency uh, perishable currency people, and apparently. It, the, the city bloomed back into activity in a matter of, you know, I don't know, not even weeks. Not only that, it went so well, the mine reopened, it went so well that they're starting to having public works, repaying the streets, there was enough. But I'm not surprised, of course, you know, the resources are there. Why shouldn't it work? Right. <laughs> If you have people there that are just out of work, that are just going crazy because they're not doing anything. They're starving to boot. I mean, they're not eating. I mean, and, and so, yeah, yeah, of course. They're going. And so, and then, and then, and then there's the story. So there was a mine. So why I say Steiner? Because Steiner says, if you want to jumpstart this, it starts with the earth. And yeah, there you go. You had the mine. And so everything, huh? and so, and then everything paving the roads and everything was just fantastic. And sure enough, one of these bills, jumps and exit the circuits and starts to be used as a means of a chain with like some peripheral other business. Okay. And in the circuit of, you know, back in those days when you were asking for credit and you're asking, you're sending your IOUs back to bigger banks to have it discounted. Slowly, slowly, this thing was so popular, it started to travel until it reached the central bank in Vienna. And the inspectors in Vienna says, looked at this thing, said, what the hell is this? And so they dispatched their inspectors to Virgil, and that was that. And, you know, you're, you're forging the currency. So when I see, and so the story is just an, ex, an exemplary story that just summarizes it all. And so I have no doubts, but 
and no doubt. So on the one hand, we're going to have to, if we want to do this, we're going to have to understand one, how to do it. Yeah. And uh, it cannot be, not all cities are like Virgil. They don't do not have a mind. And, uh, and this is why I was talking to some, some people that we might have, you know, maybe we have to think of a, a, a founding cluster of cities, maybe as a, as an, maybe, you know, like we have to think in atomic terms or, or like, you know, quarks, a group of three, a group of five, whatever. So, um maybe uh that could be the blueprint right and why, so we have on our own to figure it out and with the cautionary the caution from the the the, the monsignor who told me get yourself a lawyer uh we're going to have to need lawyers also and we're going to look and, and we're going to see what the crypto people did because cryptos are allowed but as we know when we read these uh, we look at these um uh, we look at these videos about the creation of cryptos, you know, the, the Satoshi paper, and the, the, the people who launched this were inspired by the Liberty Dollar. Remember that? Say more about that. Satoshi or some anonymous people will take kind of a, a, a reset here. Satoshi paper, to my understanding, is an anonymous group of people, maybe one, maybe more authors who kind of set up the whole Bitcoin experiment, right? Yeah. And, okay. and yeah, and it was very strange, you know, because first of all, they're anonymous and then that they got so much attention so fast. So obviously, who knows the nature of that operation? People say, nobody knows and it doesn't really matter. And I'm saying nobody knows, but it really does matter. Because I would think it would matter. I would, yeah, would want to know because it, it says a lot about the system in which we it are. It could but, resurface at any moment, right? Well, who knows? But yeah. uh, it, apparently well, the, the, the thing that fascinated me is with the, the crypto people, the crypto pioneers were, or, were inspired by this dude we invented the Liberty dollar. I don't know, this guy, uh, some random guy just minted gold coins, patriotic gold coins and start selling them. <laughs> and and, uh, and just like in Vienna, the Fed said, what are you doing? Yeah. And uh, it was last thing I saw, I don't know what happened, but they, they put him in jail for 22 years. I mean, really, uh, I have not heard of that at all. Wow. I don't know. I know, if he's, I know I the Liberty know Dollar. Them. I mean, it's yeah. like this. This is the kind of this is the kind of sentence you pass on Hannibal Lecter, you know? Yeah. And it, yeah. So um, and so inspired by the Liberty Dollar, gold minted coin, not minted in from the Fed. So they came up with this idea. But then again, the whole story one has to see is very interesting how the regulation got into cryptocurrency and now the big the big players are on, in on it too with the not so much with the currency but with the blockchain the way in which they do the yeah. peer to peer anyway so going back to us um yeah so this is these, these are the kinds of things that we need to we need to address also because we all know i mean in, in a certain sense the game is up i mean we know that the statistics about employment are completely faked uh mm -hmm. in, in italy imagine italy and spain have a youth unemployment of 50 percent something really? like official yeah okay so that means it's 75 and and that and that figures you know yeah so you got a degree so when you say the game is up to get concrete you see a crash happening what you know? i don't know i don't know if the crash is happening but i guess and you know and, and michael was telling about his students everybody knows that all these promises and i hear this also in the lingo of the schools uh we're forging leaders and, and then hammering leaders. I mean, give me a break. Um, all they're doing is recruiting people who are good at tech stuff and the rest be damn. And even amongst the tech guys, you know, lots of really talented kids, not even 10%, only 10% of them are going to make it into the higher echelons because that's all they want. They want techies and, uh, and that's it. And so in this kind of a world, you know, uh, I, 
things this will I think play to our advantage because yeah it's it's amazing to see we weren't like this you know our generation we were facing similar problems but we had more hope these new guys they have none I can concur with that you know from 20 years in campus ministry I'm now working in a public school part-time I've worked around young people um the college where I work maybe 15 years ago they took a survey of all the students it's a state university and um, one of the ones, even back then, it was something like 64% of the students felt hopeless on any given day. Now, that's a big word. We don't use that word hope much. But for, for some people like myself, I heard that and it just really landed in my gut. And I can only, only imagine where it is now. Uh, my, my youngest son, he writes a lot on the distinction between the generations. But, you know, one of his benchmarks um, is you know, that none of his friends, a very few, and if, if they are few, they're probably diluted, you know, can look forward to a pension. So what that, you know, how that changes the rest of the way you look at everything, the, you know, your work life, if the idea of a pension is ruled out uh, even beforehand, it's a completely different worldview that separates the generations. He wants to say, you know, that meme culture is super involved in his generation because that younger generation is seeing through so many of the games so that memes online, you know, capture um, duplicity. They capture outright lying, you know, where they have a picture of somebody saying something and we can capture in a mean that the exact opposite is happening. And he said that, you know, even though it's hopeless, it's keeping them somewhat sane, you know. Amused. Yeah. 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 Um, yes. Yeah. Fascinating. What do you and think, uh, Michael, do you have a question? Uh, Cause I was also going to ask Guido about, um, at some point, you know, I want to I want to give it to you, Michael, but I'd like, you know, famous within Catholic circles too, Guido, uh, you know, you have this line that the social justice teaching is the greatest kept secret in the Catholic Church. But specifically, you know, if we're looking, you know, a lot of people recognize where we're going, but the Mondragon Corporation in Spain, right, that's a benchmark for a lot of people. You know, it's a company that's, you know, it's separated in different things. You know, the leaders can't make more than a certain percentage than the lowest base employees. Is that something you've looked into, you know, and do you think there's lessons we can learn from it? Is it something you've not looked into too much? No, no, I, I have. I, I read that great book called Adam Smith, Adam Smith's Mistake, which is about the Mondragon. And okay. anyway, yeah, it was, it was great. I love that book. And I, I have a friend in the Basque countries, but he tells me that they're still there, but I don't know, they've been co-opted somehow, but it, it's definitely, it's like the Amish. I mean, I think we should collect everything. Uh, maybe, maybe, Take a trip to the Basque countries again and, and go and talk to those folks. Mm -hmm. uh, you that are close to the Amish, maybe take a picture of what they do. I think we should take everything from everybody where, where we know of it. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't remember the specifics of the, of the Mondragon project, but I thought it was great. And uh, it's always the same idea, you know, right? Small communities, self-contained microcosm, and then federation of free cities, which is the anarchistic impulse. Uh, and you know, and yeah, and and that's that's the only way to go. Um, it's the only way to go because no, it, it, it it's it by itself it's virtuous because it, it 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 frees everything and makes everybody happier. It pushes the community away from violence. I mean, it's obvious. It's obvious that it's like that. But um, but I guess at the point I guess when. Uh, question michael was talking about this about what to do for the future i think before we do anything 
And I, and I remember they always, always ask me, and I find myself always when I'm, when I've, they always say, well, okay, fine. You're criticized. You're criticized. And I'm like, well, what do we do? What do we do? And it's an, okay, we will do, but first, you know, it, it will be important also to change you know, the mindset and I'm talking about all, you know, filling our heads with, with, with garbage, uh, cleansing that and starting with filling with something. It's not as minor as people think. And, and I say people, I mean, a lot of we really well-intentional, intentioned people that just are really waiting, but they're also very impatient. And when you start telling them it's really important the way you start thinking about things, they get, in, again, they get impatient. They go, yeah, yeah, whatever. I know everything's wrong. They just I want to know what to do now. For me, I mean, I, I share all of that, but the thinking is because it's also taking me so long to detox myself and to put like two pieces of Lego together and be so happy to have these two pieces of Lego. <laughs> And uh, I'm saying, you know, I, I want everybody to say, oh, I got a piece of Lego, too. And before you get to that stage, you got to you got to think. And, and that means debunking a lot of stuff that you think was sacred. And it's not only sacred. I mean, it's just foul. Um, so so going through I'm mean, calling a program of reeducation makes me sound like a Khmer Rouge. I don't want to do that. <laughs> but. You know, just getting together and talking to one another and, 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 and just saying, you know, as we move on, let's think about what we know and what we know as we do it is essential. And that means, you know, rediscussing everything, let alone all these fake sciences or theology, which I think is useless for whatever, for what I've seen. It's a, it's a disgrace. I wouldn't even call it a, a logic or anything. Right. Uh, but even discussing, you know, the Gospels or that's fine. Always uh, but away from the neo-Thomists, you know, uh, but, you know, just what does it mean and what does it imply uh, in terms of doing and in terms of creed and so on, along with everything else? I am trying to do this work in, the, in this book that I plan, which is the tool of the false and it's costing me a lot of time. And I don't know if I, but I want to do precisely this debunking and just say, actually, because uh, it's about anarchism, and um, and then I draw my point of departure from this famous book on the anarchist terrorists, and that the founder of criminology wrote in eighteen ninety in the eighteen nineties. That's Lambrusco, no? Lombroso, yeah, Lombroso. Yeah. yeah, who's now has been completely discredited because he was, you know, because of his phys physiognomy physiognomy approach to criminology, okay. but the. Yeah, he did that, but he did many other things and beautiful, including this work. And, and, and one of the things, and Lombroso himself says, you know, I agree with a lot of things the anarchists say, but he's, he's a social conservative. He says, you cannot have revolution like that, aside from the violence, which of course we condemn, but that's not the point. Their ideas, he's like, you know, he's an academic and he's like, he's almost, he's, it's not that it pains him to say it, but he, he's honest to say, their ideas are good. They're complaining about real things. And some of the complaints written by those anarchists are amazing, and they're not in the current cu curricula anymore. I don't know. I don't know why people are not reading, not not just Bakunin, but many greats. Lavrov was citing Malatesta, and so many others. Uh, so even the the you know even the crazy ones had interesting things to say. So and that's an extraordinary body of literature which is generally treasured by few anarchist antiquarians, and uh, but it should be in the mainstream. And one of the things that even Lombroso says is you cannot have revolution like that. It has to be progressive. It has to be from within and revolutions are slow. So he's talking like an academic who's well entrenched, even though he tries to do his best not to associate with them because he, he see how parasitical they are, but he's still one of them. 
and 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 Lombroso, I look upon him with 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 with, um, with favor because not only was he a genius, and he was not a bad person, he was part of the establishment, but nevertheless, and um, but it's it's essential. It's essential that. Uh, but it, my point was that, and yeah, he said. But so their ideas are right. Their complaints are right. It's true what they say about misery, about inequality, about violence. It's all true, but they're crazy. They're killing and they want things too fast. And here comes the final punch. And their economics are just hopelessly crazy, mm. uh, hopelessly ut utopian and uh, primitive. You know, they want us to go back to the cave. They're suggesting all sorts of an anarchistic communism, which is an unfeasible and so on. And then... They, you know, they heaved a sigh of relief. Like for a moment, I was really scared. You know, I, I acknowledge, but then on the economics, they completely run aground. I mean, they, they shipwreck and thank God. Move on to the next thing. And that's where I want to stay right there. I said, oh no, oh no. And some anarchists, some in the one we we're talking about, Bob Black and the abolition of works. And he wrote, you know, great essay, but he says, you know, we anarchists, one of our strengths is that we don't, we don't offer blueprints. Oh, hell no. Of course, if we don't offer blueprints, then nobody should listen to us. We do offer blueprints, but we got to figure them out. And let me let me take that initiative to say people can find online two simple things. The name is Bob Black, uh, Guido just mentioned. You can find an essay that's also in a book form. I think both free online. Talk about anarchists, like he wasn't going to charge. Uh, it's yeah. called The Abolition of Work. It's a, it's a real work of genius. It's also genial, right? That's what we're saying is that this word anarchist, in the Catholic tradition, we have Dorothy Day and Peter Morin. It's, there's peace and love anarchists. There's peace and love anarchists. And that, that's been the vast majority, you know. Michael. Um, here's what I, so, but I think this is, this is, this is right. I mean, the, what do we do, right? And, but the, the other direction, and it's uh, something you mentioned earlier, Guido, with, I think you mentioned enclosure. Um, and a lot of what I've written about being an English professor is, you know, it's tracing the, 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 the trajectory of enclosure from Henry the seventh and Thomas More all the way to, to today, where um, th there's the kind of enclosure where um, uh, real estate development comes into communities like where I live, start buying up old farms, put in a subdivision, taxes go up, then over 20 years, the taxes have gone up 600%. Everybody's, <laughs> then the farms off to sell to Bill Gates so they can cut their losses. Um, but now, I mean, this, it's, so it went from that kind of enclosure that you saw in England in the 1500s to real estate enclosure. But now the movement uh, to enclose the, the human body, right? through these vaccines and all these other things that have been going on, you know, and vaccine passports, for instance, and which is tied in with this, this idea that you will own nothing and be happy. Right. So, so, so I think there, there, there's like that counter movement as well, where, where those guys are moving, not just into the community, but into the body now, whereas, um, the movements you're just talking about are, you know, people coming together in first, you know, small communities, then communities in relationship to each other. Um, but it seems like a race too, right? 
it seems you know it seems time is of the essence in a way yeah i i i think so i um yeah, I, yeah, no. What, what you say is interesting. Yeah, the body, of course. Uh, we, I, I don't know. I mean, we've had this this conversation amongst us before. I, I wish I knew what they were trying to do with the vaccine. And uh, unless I understand, I'm not going to say anything. It, it really enervates me. I wish I could be able to, you know, blurt out all sorts of things about, but I can't because I, I, I don't understand. So I've been trying to learn about this. You know, I'm being, again, you know, I don't know anything. So I bought myself books on immunology. You know, hell, you didn't take biology. Oh, yeah, I took biology in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what classes you had, but I can, you know, can imagine mine. So, um, yeah, so I, uh, and, and even and even God knows what was written in those books, because if those manuals are, are as good as economics manuals, you know, just so then I'm, then I'm excused. <laughs> but, um, but I didn't, I don't remember a damn thing about that. So, but, so I, I'm reading, uh, so I'm reading Duesberg's book about the invention of AIDS. And I um, downloaded the book by Celia Farber about AIDS as well. Those were a classic of the uh, counter literature on AIDS and reading about immunology. Um, just like to one, uh, 9-11 reminded us that the geopolitical spectacle is so important in politics. And I wasn't aware of that. I was living in this bubble. And then so I had to learn all that. Yeah. Now we have to, you know, the matrix, you know, 9-11 reminding us that you live in the matrix and everything is just a man-made movie that's just, you know, injected into your brain. Now, this episode here, COVID, reminded me, ignoramus, that one of the bastions of the world of the termitary we live in are three. One is health, which is huge and has come to the surface just now, but it's been there forever, uh, for a century at least. The other one is energy and the third is money. So we have to understand these three. Speaking of the, uh, also why it's going to be hard for us. One, because we're ignorant and we have to become knowledgeable. We have our own limits. And then also the masses, you know, uh, the, or the rest of us in the middle class, those who have the luxury to, to read and write, um, you know, we have to, we're, we're in a constant fight amongst ourselves. We're just a minority of people who are not willing to go to the side of the alpha and live, you know, just it's like in a movie, The, the Matrix, when the, the, the traitor talks to Agent Smith and he says, you know, when you plug me back in, uh, make me somebody famous, right, you know. Um, and so everybody wants a piece of the action. Everybody wants a piece of the action. And so I was uh, recently, I was going back through some of the things that my own father was involved in, a physicist who wrote. Yeah, describe. Theory. I mean, your dad wasn't just an everyday, ordinary physicist. No, no, my dad You're was. You're talking a, about science. I want to, I kind of want people to hear that you come from a pretty. No, my, my, dad, my dad was, was a man of a, quite a singular talent. He was, uh, I guess he was tenured in particle physics at NYU. He was 27. And so he had, like, <laughs> he had an extraordinary career. Then uh, in his early 30s, banking on what he, it's very interesting. I mean, he, he, he died 20 years ago. And I wish, I had so many questions I wish I could have asked. But back then, you know, I didn't. Uh, and uh, in his, he thought he was so irreplaceable, he, you know, that he, he, they deserved five. He told me I deserve. He was counting on his figure, at least five Nobel prizes for what I've done. And then, um, and and then in his early thirties, precisely because he thought he had so much capital accumulated, and he was is very, you know, he is famous and everything. He decided that something happened. I mean, it's a long story. I'll make it short. Something happened in the in big science and in the world of physics they changed the course of the agenda in the mid seventies, something very critical, very mysterious, very important happened. 
and my dad protested and they can't and they they had they called a general amnesty of all the different schools of physics that were fighting one another too mainly over the nature of the of matter you know study of matter at you know and um and then they called the great Feynman, you know the nobel prize richard for, Feynman, for, sure. richard Feynman to preside over this great of this great peace of reconciliation and the new course of theory from that moment on. And there was a famous instance where my dad just, he was early in his early 30s, stood up and challenged the great Feynman, telling him, what you say is nonsense. You know, and there he was, a 30-year-old talking, and, and my dad was in awe of Feynman. He was, it's not that he thought he was an old, you know, an old fool, an old crew. No, he was. And, um, and that sealed the end of my dad's career. So wow. That wow. story. No, he was he was tenured, but that's then wild, yeah. You know, marginal and yeah, lost. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's the way it works, right? Yeah, it hadn't been for tenure, he would have been out. Yeah. So and he, he, he became rogue and suffered ever since because when you're in that world, he always he always wanted back, you know, which I thought was kind of depressing to watch. You know, you can't be Pope and Eresiarch at the same time. It's if, if you want to be a chief of heretics, be the chief of heretics. Stop <laughs> crying about not being part of the church anymore. But for these guys, once they've seen, you know, these peaks, they always want to be you know, status, the prestige, they always, that was, so he was torn between these two things. When he went rogue, however, he started to, you know, um, write theories for all these phenomena, for the memory of water, one huge wow. thing that happened, and for the and cold fusion. And so I'm, all this story, and just to come back to this thing, I'm away from my dad for a moment, but, and so I, and, and, uh, and for my dad, these were problems that I mean, it worked. It took him a very long time to come to his to his theoretical approach. But once he had it developed and was in his late forties, all these phenomena that was just were puzzling the universe, the, the planet. For my dad, were simple to explain because there were applications of his general theory, and he could explain this and this and then the other. And he told me he was almost bored by the you know, yeah, I, I I understand the phenomenon. So, so anyway. Why, why was the memory of water really skewered immediately? And it came from this guy, Jacques Biavenis, who was an, uh, a chemist and a biologist, really affirmed and really posh. And, and they destroyed him. And Biavenis died, likewise, of this phenomenon. And, uh, and, another, and the other one is a story, as you remember, in Cold Fusion, where they made the announcement in the 80s. We all remember that. And, um, and my dad was, I got to know, I traveled, I met Fleischmann and Palms. I, I, I saw this, I lived through all this. I was, I was in my twenties. And so what, and I'm getting to my point. What really struck me though, is that recently I was going back on this, reading some of the manuscripts of my dad and writing about this and that, cause I want to understand what happened with big science and the politics of it. Cause I don't still. And, um, and I read some bloggers and uh and some reactions and about co-fusion and the bad news is that co-fusion is going to come back you know that because it's in the hands of google and gates again now it's it's going to become legit so they say back when it came out everybody was screaming charlatan crackpot die whatever that's what i'm talking about so here you are so there are a couple of really established solid scientists like Biavenis and Flashman and Pons. You know, Flashman was a member of the Royal Chemist. Like, I mean, is a top British. I mean, uh, and that make this announcement. And you would imagine, you would imagine that the world listens to this because one, when he announces the memory of water, what is he saying? He's saying that we can cure you with electromagnetic waves and water, period. That's the end of the pharma arm of the monopoly. 
The others, what are they saying? Same thing. We can fuel everything with water. That's the end of the energy cartel. Whoa. That's the reason why they, they kill them, de facto. Then. But it's, to me, what strikes me, it's not so much the, you know, the conservative ferociousness of the system that will kill whatever because as, as, I, as I wrote, the system is not interested in science. This cult of science is illusory. The system doesn't give a damn about science. The system cares about the technology that sustains it, the routines and the technology routines that sustain its tenure. Those, yes. But science per se, no, actually, it could be very dangerous. These same guys that you've been covering, been covering in gold as alphas, as my own father, uh, they can turn against you as they will, when mm -hmm. they become prideful enough to think that they are irreplaceable and they say, well, hey, I'm a genius. You, you recognize that I'm a genius, so let now listen to this genius. And the system goes, I don't think so. Actually, get out of my sight and die altogether. And you're gone. This is what they do. This is what happens. It's, it strikes me sometimes that these big people can be so naive, right? And so on the one hand, and um, what, and I'm coming finally to my point, what really strikes me, it's not what the system does. The system does what it do. The parasites have to protect their parasitical tenure. What strikes me is our counterparts in the middle stratum. What? You got these accomplished scientists that tell you that you can have, that you can be cured for free and that you can have energy for free, which means more liberations of free time to nurture yourself and, and get most of the world and all the world out of misery, which is what we want for everybody and for ourselves. What do they do instead? They start to scream crackpot, you know, charlatan. Yep. Oh, you know, and, I'm, and still in today's blogs, they're still there. These nobodies with a degree in science that just want to talk and blog who take pot shots at these heretics to me that's the most disturbing thing more than what the big ones the big parasites do because you know for obvious reasons well that was quite a story let me um let me mention again for people interested uh, guido's dad giuliano preparatus that's right right you could wikipedia him um you know, and all those controversies, Richard Feynman and so forth. Fascinating. I've known you for some time, Guido. I didn't know that whole story, you know, that ties together health, energy, and money. You know, so I, I began by saying, for me, you're something of a uh, an Ivan Illich. I don't want to put him on too much of a pedestal, but he, he also dealt in those three areas. Um, and I think, you know, as we continue, you know, I mentioned at the onset, you'll be somewhat regular guests. Um, and I'm so, so grateful for that. How about we end uh, with a few things? You know, I want to make some mentions. Guido, why don't you tell people about your website? Or yeah, how website, can they get more? How how can they get more involved with your work? No, thank. Uh, yeah, my website is in a, is is in a very bad. Everything's been redesigned. Let's put it this way. So right now it's in a, it's a shambles, and many links don't work. But yeah, uh, and thank you for mentioning. I want to. Um, it will be the. The website will be entirely refurbished. I'm going to put a lot of essays on it. And I'm also launching my new, a new uh, press, a publishing house, where one day I'll hope I'll be able to publish not just me, but everybody else, if, if it makes sense for them and, and for this to happen and the, the financials of it. I don't know yet. 
uh, starting as a, yeah. And so I'm going to have a website for that too. And where we're going to, it's going to be a collaborations and uh, um, promote and launch a lot of books on all of these issues. So these two things are going to happen in this forthcoming season. Is the, is the new website still going to be named guidopreparata.com? Yes, and awesome. then and the, and the press, yes. can, it has to be. The press is called Ad Triarios. And, and tell uh, us about the uh, the origin of that. The that or, yeah, it's it's the third liners. It's the third liners of the Roman <laughs> legions. It's when things got to a point where the battle cannot be solved, they would just uh, uh, open the lines to let the third liners come in. Generally, they were you know professional butchers. But all this violent imagery is more, I intended more figuratively. So yeah. we are the third line in a good sense. Peace and love anarchists who renounce violence. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, in the logo, yeah, they were suggesting, well, if it's uh, if it's a TS, you should have like a legionnaire. So absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would make sense, but that's not the idea. But yeah. I like this idea of, you know, of now is the time to, you know, cut the cut the knots and just I get, like down, it. get down to, you know, just say it as it is and, and change and, and and move on and especially debunk. We got to debunk a lot of stuff. We our minds are ball right. ballasted with a lot of misconceptions and things that are of no use. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, let, let's put some good pieces of Lego in there and one at a time. Even if you have one, I have one or two, and I'm happy with those two. And I exactly. want to put more. Yeah, um, I might mention too that at a website um, called Front Porch Republic, I've written two articles kind of with you and about you. One was about your book on uh, Catholic economic and political thought. You edited with uh, some other people. It's called New Directions in Catholic Social and Political Research. My uh, The article I reviewed it is called Avoiding the Hive, frontporchrepublic.com. Also did a, just kind of a kind of a summary of your work you know, that spoke to me so much, and that's called Bridging the Gap Between Narrative and Reality, the work of Guido Preparata. And that, too, is at frontporchrepublic.com. Uh, previous i mentioned uh, uh mike martin's journal he's the editor of jesus the imagination can you tell us about that because it's also in an article i have upcoming in the um the new edition it's mentioned guido preparata it's on usury we'll have a whole other interview about usury and so forth go michael i you know jesus the imagination uh the next volume i'm still waiting on a couple essays is on the theme flesh and spirit that's where mike mike's uh essay will will appear and uh I mean, you can find you can find Jesus' imagination on wherever wherever books are sold, but you can also find it on my website, on the Center for Creative for Sociological Studies and, and your other books are on that website too, right? They're all there too, yeah. Because the one you mentioned, we began by talking about Michael's book called Transfiguration, um, and, and his chapter on economics. And I almost think that that book, Michael, kind of gives us a framework to continue so many of these excellent interviews. Yeah, so, a, yeah, that, that's the like I think of that book as the the practical sociology. I mean, yeah. what, what do you actually do, right? Yeah. What, what yeah. can you start to do? Something we began by saying the distributors absolutely refuse to do, which is anything. Well, you know, they wouldn't even join a CSA. <laughs> 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 Just join a CSA, they would do something. Yeah. Well, nice. thanks everybody for listening to the uh, Regeneration podcast. Uh, Rita, we're going to see you again in about a month or so. Does that work? Yeah, yeah it works. And well, I'll ask you like which topic I can think of about. 10 to 20 right off the bat. Yeah. Um, so thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Michael, take care. Yeah. Take care.